Good morning, church. Wow, wow. <laughs> I'm happy to hear everyone responding. <clears throat> well, uh, if you've been here for the last few weeks, what we're doing is um, we are studying some of the words that Jesus taught us. Um, as you know, uh, Jesus taught in different ways. Sometimes he would give straight out teachings, sometimes to thousands of people. And, and sometimes when people asked him questions, uh, the way that he answered was with a story. He would tell them what we call a parable, <clears throat> and he would give us profound lessons uh, through those stories. Today, um, I want us to go through one of the parables that is very well known. I'm sure that you have read it and probably heard it preached more than once. Uh, it's the parable of the Good Samaritan. Um, but I think that it's important for us to study it today because we've been talking about love a lot, uh, how important it is for us to learn how to love. And this parable reveals to us truly what it means to love, but it's also it's one of the parables that confronts us in one of the strongest possible ways. You know, when Jesus said this story, he was smacking completely the person that asked him the question. And, and I am hoping with all my uh, warm heart that he will smack you as well, okay? <clears throat> So I want, I want us to pray real fast. We'll read the, the context and we'll go into the parable. Um, Father, I, I just thank you for your love. I thank you for your word. And we know, Lord, that uh, without your Holy Spirit guiding us, it is impossible for us to do anything spiritual. So we will not get exactly what you meant to tell us unless we are helped by your spirit. So help us, Father. It's in your beautiful name that I ask this. Amen. All right, so let's see the context where this uh, parable happens. It's uh, in the gospel according to Luke chapter 10. Uh, I'm going to start in verse 25. It says, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who's my neighbor? See, first we have to remember that the teachings about love God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself are not new, okay? From the Old Testament, even though they were taught separately before Jesus mentioned them for the first time together, you know, this, this was not a new thing. But what Jesus always does is to try to confront the narrow definition that we have of the concept of love, See, sometimes it's a narrow definition or sometimes we build walls around our love so we restrict ourselves from giving it freely. And to do it, what he always does is he tries to shatter those walls or, or widen the definition. Like, for example, you remember in the Sermon of the Mount, uh, he says uh, more than once, like, you have heard it say, you know, you should not kill. But I tell you, if you hate in your heart your brother, you're killing him. Or, or you have heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I say it. If, if you're committing it in your mind, you're already doing it. So he's taking our narrow definition and he's shattering it, okay? So this expert of the law, you know, uh, asks these questions. He answers what Jesus asks him. But then it says, 
he tries to justify himself. You know, he says, what must I do to inherit the, the you know, eternal life? Jesus tells him, what do you think? He says, love God, love my neighbor. Yes, go do it. But then the justification comes. He says, and who is my neighbor? Why did he ask that question? See, in that culture, what they had done, and, and I want you to try to put yourself in the shoes of this person because this is exactly the same thing that we're doing nowadays. What they did, they, they built walls or restrictions as far as who represent a neighbor. Okay? And, and, and these restrictions were defined usually by religious reasons, ethnical reasons, or political reasons. You know, a, a rabbi contemporary to Jesus at the time, you know, wrote these words. You cannot kill a Gentile. But if you see him dying on the street, you don't have to stop to help him. You know, they, they were narrowing the definition of what it meant, who is your neighbor. So your neighbor to them basically was a faithful Jew. Someone that looked like them, believed like them, thought like them. So when Jesus hears this question, what he's going to do is he's going to confront these beliefs and expectations because what he's trying to do, this expert of the law, is he's trying to validate his beliefs through Jesus. So what he really is saying to Jesus is, can you please reaffirm this restriction that we have created about, about who is our neighbor? Now, you have to be aware of the fact that doing that is not just something exclusive to the Pharisees. This is human nature. You know, we all try to use narrow definitions of the law. We, we know we need laws of society wouldn't function. But what we try to do is, if you can give me the, the narrowest possible version of the law, then it's easier to fulfill it. And I'll give you an example that probably happens in your house as well as it happened in mine. Have you noticed how the definition of what does it mean to have a clean house means? Are there more than one definitions? It depends on who you ask. You know, if you ask someone, is that clean? You know, one person would say yes, one person would say no. I remember when, when our children were small, we would send them to clean house. And they would come back when they finished. And guess who they came and asked to come and check their work? Me or my wife? Me, of course. Because they would come and say, I clean. I would look like, looks clean. <laughs> and then Karina would come and say like, Let me see. No, this is not clean. You know? <laughs> so we, we all try to find the narrow definition of the law, okay? Well, that's exactly what all conversations regarding love happen with Jesus. People are trying to affirm their restriction, and what Jesus is going to do is shatter their restrictions. In this uh, story, he is going to confront the limits of what we have, you know, narrowed or created around love. See, the question of this expert of the law Who is my neighbor? In reality, what he's asking is, who do I not have to love? That's what he's asking. He's not saying, who's my neighbor? He's saying, tell me who is not my neighbor. So I can just concentrate on loving the people that I want to love. And, and the way that Jesus answers is with a story. And, and amazingly enough, what he's going to tell him is not who is his neighbor. He's going to explain to him, what does it mean to be a neighbor? And he's going to teach us three very deep lessons about what it means to be a neighbor. So let's read the parable. It's in verses 30 to 37. It says, in reply, 
Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the men, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and he saw him and took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expenses you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. See, the, the, the road between Jerusalem and Jericho, it's a road that is about 15 miles long. It's a very dangerous road even today because it's a very treacherous road. But at the time it was dangerous because, you know, the land was plagued with robbers. There was a bunch of uh, rebellious people to Rome that will form small armies and go and live in the wilderness preparing to take the power back. And, and sometimes they just rob people, you know, to sustain themselves. This guy makes the huge mistake of traveling alone. In those days, it was very dangerous to do that. So what happens is a group of robbers attack him, you know, take all his clothes, all his belongings, leave him half dead. A, a, a priest and a Levite walk by, and, and the language indicates that purposefully they turn and walk away to the other side and start looking at the scenery to the other side. So on purpose, you know, they are going to ignore this man that it's there, okay? Jesus doesn't tell us why they do that. But I'll tell you what the people that are hearing this parable know about these two men. This is a priest and a Levite that are coming from Jerusalem and they're going to Jericho, which means they most likely just left the temple in Jerusalem and it means that they are ceremonially clean. You know, the, the, the Jewish people you know, had all kinds of purification rituals to be ceremonially clean and, and especially priests and Levites. So they're just leaving the temple, they're perfectly clean and they have to go to Jericho and they're going to perform other tasks. But if, if they stop... And, and they pay attention to this guy, you know, they're going to stop being ceremonially clean. So when they see the individual, they don't know if he's sick, you know, if he's just badly hurt or dead. But if they stop, this is going to completely interrupt and mess up their plans. So this is the first thing that we learn about what it means to be a neighbor. To be a neighbor means, number one, to put people above your agenda. You know, to put people about the things that you have to do. You know, I, I, I don't know about you. When I wake up in the morning, I have an idea of exactly the things that I have to do that day. Actually, I have them written down. I have a to-do list, you know, a plan of action. You know, even if I am going to finish all my to-do list, I usually don't have much space for interruptions, especially when they come from people, you know, because they take off your time, you know. <laughs> but, but if you're going to love you know, the way that Jesus taught us how to love, you're going to have to put people above your tasks. See, this is something that I learned early on when we started the church. You know, in the beginning of the church, Karina and I, my wife Karina and I, used to do most of the work that needed to be done in order for us to have the service. 
We would come early in the morning, set up the kids' room together, set up the chairs in the room. I would connect the computer, the projector, test the PowerPoint in those days, you know, make sure that the lights, because they were portable lights, we had to break everything down and put it back up every Sunday, you know. And, and, and I realized at some point that I would get there on Sundays and I would be like task-oriented. The computer, is it connected? The projector, okay, the instruments, do they sound right? Where are the lights? Are they set correctly? And I would pass every point And then at some point, I realized I was not seeing people. You know, people actually passed by and said, hi. And I was like, hi. You know, wouldn't even look. You know, and I thought I was doing a good job because I was doing all the tasks until I started hearing from people that felt hurt. You know, and, and at some point, God had to confront me and say, why do you think we do this? What do you think is the most important part of this, the people? Or, 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 or if the lights are properly set? See, uh, we live in a society that goes at such a speed and we have such a frantic amount of things to do that for some reason we end up believing that the more we do, the better we are. Um, I read an article that um, the Harvard Business Review published uh, in 2018 that was titled, If you are so successful, why are you still working 70 hours a week? You know, Google it. It's a very interesting read. Um, this, this article introduces a character that I had never thought of before, but now once you read it, you can't get it out of your head. It's called the uh, insecure overachiever. These are people that are very insecure, but they produce always above normal. Apparently, the most powerful organizations in the world are always seeking for people like this. Because these are very capable people, very professional people, but they are pushed by a profound sense of not being adequate, of not being good enough in everything that they do. You know, and sometimes these ideas, they carry them from childhood. Some of them because they grew up very poor. They lacked a lot of things. Some of them because, you know, they had this belief that the love of their parents was determined by their good behavior. You know, so, you know, they respond by producing exceptional performance. But as people, they're very highly insecure. And this is why the companies seek them, because people that works based in insecurity produces the best results. Why? Because no amount of results ever fills the vacuum. They never arrive to the point where they think, I've done enough. I can stop. They have to keep going. Now, the Bible tells us that that is not a problem of, of the uh, business world only. You know, there are students that they think that they can never get enough good grades. You know, housewives that they never think that their house is clean enough or ordered enough. Athletes that if they don't break records or, you know, race to a certain bar, that, you know, they are not good enough. So, so, so the problem is this seed that it's profoundly ingrained in us that nothing is enough. Of course, you know, the, the solution of the gospel is that all our insufficiencies are covered and satisfied by Jesus through the mercy of God. You know, thanks to Jesus, you and I don't have to prove anything to anyone. But if you don't understand that and you don't leave that, you're going to be pursuing the false savior of your own performance. And what that's going to do is going to turn the things that you have to do into the most important thing 
of that day for you. And when you elevate any given task to that degree, you know who you're not going to have time for. People. So people will fall into one of two categories. Either they help me to fulfill my tasks, so I use them, or they do not help me and I ignore them. You know, I just pass them by. And that's the darkest side of the insecure overachiever. These are very selfish people. It seems from the outside that they love you, but in reality, they only love themselves. You know, they, they don't really love, they love you as much as they love their car or their house or their money. They love them because they serve them. And the moment that they stop serving them, then they ignore them, they, they, they drop them. Yeah? So, see, if the most important thing for you is to fulfill a task because your security comes from there, then you will lose the capacity to see and love people because in our mind, people are assets, not relationships. And when you live with that mentality, there is absolutely no way that you can love in a different way, the way that Jesus taught us. He said, we have to love different. I'm going to show you a new way of loving. So if you don't even have time to love in the normal way, let alone in a different way. So that's the first lesson that Jesus gives us. People above tasks, always. Okay? The second point, we can understand it if you think of the state in which they find this guy. See, they say, uh, Jesus says that they, they stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, you know, and they leave him there half dead. So, so he was naked, disfigured, and unconscious. Why are these things so important to notice? See, in the society of that time, there was a mix of ethnic groups, social classes, and religions. So how would you know to what group did a person belong to? By the way they are dressed, by the way that they look, and by how they express their belief system. But this guy is naked. So they can tell if it's of the same social class as they are. He's disfigured, so they can't really tell what race does he belong to, and he's unconscious. So they cannot ask him what religions does he believe in. Okay, so these two Jewish men walk by, and they are wondering, is this guy like me? Does he have the same social status that I have? Would he have money? Does he believe in the same God that I believe? See, what they're doing is they're looking for labels to see if this guy is like them, but they can't find any of the labels that would help them. The only thing that they can determine with certainty is that this guy is a human being. And for them, that's not enough. See, and, and, and what Jesus is trying to emphasize with this parable is it should have been enough. So this is the second thing that we learn. To be a neighbor means, number two, to put our similarities above our differences. Our similarities are more important than what makes us different. To know that what we have in common is way more important than whatever can make us different. And, and to make this confrontation even more striking, Jesus makes the hero of this parable a Samaritan. And maybe a little bit of context is important for you to understand what he's saying to this, to this guy. See, 
If you know the story of the people of Israel, um, after Solomon, King Solomon dies, you know, that's the last time that uh, the nation of Israel is a superpower and an and admired nation because his son makes a stupid mistake and the kingdom divides in two. You know, 10 tribes stay at the north and they call the northern kingdom. That's Israel with their capital in Samaria. And, and the two tribes that stay in the south, that's where Jerusalem is and they're known as Judah. That's where the word Jewish comes from, from Judah, okay? So the 10 tribes are in the north, two tribes in the south, and they become two different kingdoms. About 721, 22 years before Christ, the Assyrians come and invade Samaria. They destroy the 10 northern uh, uh, tribes, and they take captive with them most of the men, all the capable men, all the young and strong men, they take them with them, most of the women, and they leave behind women, very old men, and a group of soldiers, Assyrian soldiers. They stay there. And also the king of Assyria sends a priest to try to indoctrinate them into their religion. So what, what comes out of there, it's a mixed race, half Jewish, half pagan. And, and since they are Jewish, they believe in the five books, uh, first five books of the Bible, the Torah. But also they start being indoctrinated into Akron, the king of the Assyrians, Baal Sebut, okay? So, you know, 150 years later, the Babylonians come and do the same thing to, to the southern kingdom. You know, they come and invade Jerusalem and they take with them the men. But 70 years later, they release them and they come back. And when these Jewish people come back to Jerusalem and they see the Samaritans as a mixed race, they hate them. Actually, if you read in the Old Testament, they start rebuilding the temple and the Samarians want to come and help. They say, want to come and help Britain? They say, no, you're not worthy. You're pagans, you know? And then on top of it, when Rome comes, you know, to, to go against Jerusalem, the Samaritans join the Romans. They help them. So, so a Jew, when they see a Samaritan, they see a pagan oppressor and a Jewish traitor in the same person. So can you imagine, you see, there, there's no equivalent that I could use today to try to point at a person that is different than you without getting into a controversy and people sending mails because I'm a racist, okay? So for you to try to figure this out, try to think of the person that less looks, thinks, and believes like you. Try to think of that person, like the, someone that is completely the opposite of your belief system, your race, your everything. And don't think of that person only as someone that Jesus says you have to love. Think of them as someone that Jesus just said they are the model of loving. This is what he just did. Can you see what he's pushing us to see? To this teacher of the law, Jesus is telling him the story of two Jewish people that find the men that doesn't have any of the labels that they have, but is helped by a person that has all the wrong labels. You know, everything that they despise. So what is he trying to emphasize? The only thing that other people have to have in common for us to love them is that they are human beings. That's putting our similarities above our differences. Do you know what is it that we have in common, all of us? We all bear the image of God, all of us, every single person of this planet. And we really need to learn this lesson because we live in a moment in history 
where our, our differences, religious, social, cultural, and political, produce hate. You know, th there's hate between people. The, you know, the country right now is more divided than I've ever seen it in my life. And I'm not that old, but I've been around, okay? I'm going to turn 63. So what, I, what Jesus is trying to tell us is you cannot fall into the trap that society has been cut in. That's, it's a trap. And this is the tactics that the world does. You know, they, they, you see a human being and you start subtracting from their humanity based on what makes you different. Does he have a different color of skin? Does he, uh, is affiliated to a different political party? Does he believe different than me? Does he see or she sees the wrong news channel? You know, like hate. And you consider them less human because they don't have the same labels that you have. And then we feel justified to restrain our love. And what we offer is judgment. How is that behavior different than the world? There is nothing of the love that Jesus teaches us in that behavior, nothing. And listen, you may not see your image in these other people, but God still sees his. I had a person once justifying himself like this guy and said, and what of our Christian convictions? Since when loving a person makes it necessary for you to change your Christian convictions. If in order to love someone, that person has to believe the right things and live the right things, how can God love us? Or you're going to tell me you live aligned with all God's commandments in your life? But he still loves you. Something to think about. You know, all the temples of that time had a central area with the image of their God. Sometimes it was in the middle of the temple and sometimes it was at the end of the temple. And they honored that image. And whatever people did to the image, they considered they were doing it to their God. That's what, there were wars that started when somebody desecrated the image of a God. Because whatever you did to the image, you did it to the God. All temples had an image except one. Do you know which one? The Jewish temple in Jerusalem. It didn't have an image because God told them not to. He said, no, you bear my image. Each one of you bears my image. You, you, don't, have, you don't need an image to, to worship. You bear my image. And whatever you do to the image, you do it to the God. So, Second lesson, put similarities above differences. We're all human beings and that's enough. Last point. You know, it's very interesting that the longest part of this story, Jesus, uh, Jesus uses it to tell us everything that this Samaritan did for the beaten man. Meaning he not only shows love without restrictions, He shows an abundant love. 
You know, it says that he bandaged his wounds. He, it means he used his own clothing to bandage this guy. You know, he, he, he poured oil and wine into his wounds to heal them. The, the very things that he needed for sustaining himself through, you know, the day, he used them to heal this guy. He puts it on top of his own donkey, which means he has to walk the rest of the way to Jericho or to the closest holiday inn on the road between Jericho and, and Jerusalem, you know? And then it says there that he stays there with him during that day and overnight. You know, I, I don't think that that was his plan. You know, this was a businessman, so, you know, he probably planned to get as fast as possible to Jericho, but instead he stays with this guy. And the next day he leaves enough money to, to pay for a month's stay for this guy. He says, here's this money, I'm going to come back. When I come back, if, if we run the bill, I'll, I'll repay you. Because you know what they did to people that stay at an inn and didn't pay? They sold them as slaves. So he says, do not sell this guy, all right? I'm going to come back and I'll pay for everything. So here is the third point. To be a neighbor means to sacrifice by putting the problems and needs of others above our own. You sacrifice of your own things to try to help other people solve their problems. See, oftentimes we think that putting others above us, it's only a matter of letting them get away with their preferences. What do you want to watch today? Whatever you want, dear. You know, what restaurant do you want to go eat? You pick. And we're putting them above us. There's a certain truth to that. Men, be wise, stop arguing, just do whatever she wants, okay? But you have to understand, amen to that, yeah. <laughs> When the Bible wants you to see an example of selfless and humble love, always points at Jesus. Look at what Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 and 8. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, He gave up his divine privileges. Listen to that word. He had the right because he was the God of the universe. And he says, I'm not going to hold on to my privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. What do we see there? See, Jesus took our problems and made them his problems. That wasn't his cross to bear. That was ours. You know, he, he, he drank the cup of wrath that you and I should have drowned in. So to be a neighbor means that we find problems that are not our problems and we adopt them as our own. That is different love. That is an unusual love. Think of how unusual that really is. You know, I was giving you the example of cleaning house. You know what kids do when you say, let's pick up the house. Let's say that you have a Saturday night, a movie night, and, you know, they bring all kinds of things and food and toys and everything. And at the end, you say, let's pick up. What, is, what do, do every kid will do? Pick their stuff, right? And if you tell them, pick that up, I didn't get it out. Go ahead and pick it anyway. That's not fair. That's not my mess. Your mess, your consequences. How would you look at one of your children if he said, Father, I'll pick up everything. Don't worry. Go to bed. He goes, like, what happened to you? 
right? I mean, you would be shocked. Why? Because that's unusual. That's not normal. You know, but this is what Jesus asks us to do. Pick up other people's messes out of love for him. So your problems are not just your problems. They're my problems. They're our problems. And your mess becomes our mess. Isn't that what the Samaritan did? I see you. I see your predicament. The other two saw this guy too. But the Samaritan saw in a different way. You know, before he was murdered, the last uh, speech that Martin Luther King gave, he talked about this parable. I don't know if you knew this, but this is what he said. He said, the first question the priest and the Levite asked when they saw the guy was, if I stop to help this guy, what's going to happen to me? But when the Samaritan came, the first question that he asked was, if I don't stop, what will happen to him? You know, that's seeing and being moved to pity. And then you take action. At the end, uh, Jesus asked the expert of the law, so who was neighbor to this guy? And the guy cannot even bring himself to say the Samaritan. What he says is the guy that had mercy. You know, he refuses to even say it. So Jesus is trying to tell us this. Do not ask me who is your neighbor among all these people. Ask me, how can I be a neighbor to all these people? That's the question. Am I being a neighbor to all the people around me? Because that's what we need to be. And listen, every time we talk about this kind of love, uh, we always talk about how we start in our inner circle and then we start expanding. It is very interesting to me how for some people it's a lot harder to be a real neighbor to the people that they see every day. It's easier to be a neighbor to someone that you just help once. That you go and buy, yeah, help someone, then you go away. Why? Because if you really get engaged with someone that you see every day, your every day becomes his problems. You're going to carry this with the person every day. But that's what Jesus called us to be. So are you a neighbor to your mate? Do you value your mate above your tasks? You make the problems of your mate really your problems? How about your kids? That one is a little bit easier because their problems end up being your problems anyway, right? <laughs> But think of it this way. Instead of seeing it as part of the responsibility of being a parent, think of it as an opportunity to love your kids the way God wants you to love them. And then it starts becoming harder. How about your coworkers? How about your actual neighbors? And then it becomes really, really hard. How about the people that are very, very different than you? that think completely opposite than you think politically, religiously, you know, in every possible way they see different. Can you imagine how the world would change if only the people that call themselves Christians did this? Do you know how many millions of Christians are around the world? If we all decided to put everything 
you know, that it's important above everything that it's not how the world would change? And, and, and maybe you think I'm pushing the envelope too much, but isn't that what Jesus modeled for us? I mean, didn't he come from heaven, left his deity aside like we just read and became a man and spent his life on earth surrounded by creatures that were completely different than him and believed completely different than him and made anyway our problems his problems? Didn't he pay for our mess so that we didn't have to pay for it? Listen, um, he loves you without restrictions. There are no walls around his love. And you know why he loves you that way? So that you can do the same. So you are free to love other people the same way. And, and, and you have to remember what's at stake. Because Jesus said to his disciples, do you know how they're going to know that you're my disciples? If you love the way I loved you. If we don't love in a different way, we're the same as the world. If there's no difference between the church and the world, we lose our testimony to the world. So we don't have anything to tell the world if we do exactly the same things that they do. Now, there's something that excites me very much and makes me very happy. I know there's a lot of people in community of faith that live this. You know, there's a lot of you. This is why community of faith is impacting the world, not, not just the surroundings, the world, across the ocean, in Mexico and in South America and Africa. You know, you are making a difference. But we have a long way to go. We truly have to learn to love more the people that are different here in our own nation than just Love at a distance where we don't really have to get involved. So I believe that only that type of love can solve the social breakup that's happening in this nation right now. So how do we get there? That's how Jesus ended. Go and do likewise. Be a neighbor to all. Let's pray. Father, um, I know that we all want to be that type of person and that sometimes we have to fight against ourselves. And that's because we need you, Lord. We truly need you in our hearts. We truly need to commit to a deep relationship with you so that we start seeing the way that you see, feeling the way that you feel and loving the way that you love. And that's what we want to do as a church and as individuals, Father. So we ask you, fill us with your spirit. Give us the wisdom to walk close to you, to get deep into your word, and to start applying the things that we learn so that we'll truly love the way that you loved us. Help us, Father. It's in your powerful name that I pray. Amen. We love you guys more than you know. Um, you know there will be people in front of here. If you need a prayer, come to one of them. They love to pray with you. And God willing, we'll be back very soon, Karina and I. So love you, and you're now dismissed.